0: and turn in your Bibles if you have one, and I hope you do, to the book of Acts. Chapter 25 and 26 are where we're going to be today as we come to what should be, Lord willing, the second-to-last study in this wonderful book of Acts that has occupied our attention for the vast majority of this calendar year. And chapter 25 and 26, of course, represents quite a large amount of text. And so what I want to do to get us going is to help us see what really is the central part of the passage in Paul's last stand and defense there before Agrippa. So let me read verses 1 through 23. So a sizable portion, no doubt. 1 through 23 of chapter 26, as that represents Paul's final sermon in the book of Acts. And then I'll pray for our time and we'll continue on this morning. So... Uh, Listen uh, once again as God does speak to you now uh, through his perfect and powerful word. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself? Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with, With all the customs and the controversies of the Jews, therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. It was in this connection that I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday, O king. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and all the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying, both to small and great Say nothing but what the prophets and Moses said must come to pass, that Christ would suffer, and that, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again together. Father, we thank you for your sovereign care in our life uh, that you have brought us on this glorious day that you call your own to hear from your word of truth. And we do ask that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, that you would uh, ready our minds and ears to listen to what you would have us hear this day, uh, trusting that you will speak words of life into our very hearts, uh, trusting that your spirit would lead us to repentance. Repentance. That your kindness would lead us to salvation. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When when Christians truly trust in God's sovereignty, uh, you might notice that suffering can become especially sweet. Uh, Said a different way, when, when you truly trust in God's providential care, His providential rule in your life that even something like a prison can become a palace or something like a prison uh, can become a pulpit for preaching the gospel. That was true in, in the life of a man named John Bunyan. When he was 30 years old, his first wife died and she left behind four children under the age of 10. Uh, one of whom was blind. It wasn't long later, within the next year, uh, that Bunyan remarried to a remarkable woman named Elizabeth. And it wasn't long after that, about within a year, uh, that he was thrown into prison because he was preaching the gospel without a license from the state church. And they said, Bunyan, you know, you can be out, free, walking about on your own. All you have to do is just say, I'm not going to preach. And he said, well, of course, my conscience can't do that. I believe that the Lord has called me to preach. And so he was put in prison. And for all intents and purposes, there he remained for the next 12 years. And although he couldn't preach in the same way as he could when he was out of the prison, he picked up his pen and began to write, because Bunyan was a very long and eloquent writer. And one of the many things that he wrote in that over a decade of imprisonment is famously known as The Pilgrim's Progress, and almost hundred years after he wrote it, a famous preacher named George Whitfield said of the pilgrim's progress, it smells of the prison. And what he meant by that was this: he said, Ministers preach best and write best often when under a cross. Kids, that means a difficulty, a season of suffering. And I tell you that because what we come to in our text today, Acts 25 and 26. Is the Apostle Paul preaching yet again? It's a sermon that very much smells like a man who for years has been in a prison. A man who knows thus what it means to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because where we left off last week was at the end of chapter 24, or well, you'll glance up to 24, verse 27, we're told that two years elapsed where Felix, this Roman ruler, had left Paul in prison. And we pick up the story today after a regime change has occurred and the new ruler there in Caesarea, this man named Festus, well, he wants to know something about this man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, and it becomes the occasion for the final sermon that Paul gives in a book Full of, of sermons. And it's a sermon, once again, that smells very much like the prison. Now, I have a friend that often refers to Western culture as a chipper culture. And what he means by that, students, is he says, We live in a Western world, don't we, that, that loves to amplify triumphs and to press mute on tragedies. Uh, We love to celebrate uh, rulers and athletes and content creators and influencers who are selling out for the pursuit uh, of power and for the pursuit uh, of pleasure. Uh, But Christians know that there's a much different story that belongs to the human condition. Uh, Certainly we should at least know there's a different story Because to live in this world is not to live in our happy home. It's to live as pilgrims that are just wandering about on the way through much suffering, through much trial, through much difficulty, on the way to the celestial city that is our heavenly home. And so it's why Jesus could tell his apostles, in this world you'll experience much tribulation. It's why those very apostles could tell the early church, it's through many sorrows, it's through many sufferings that you must enter into heaven. So, Christians, therefore, often are people who are familiar, maybe not with a prison cell like Paul, but maybe the prison of pain, a prison of opposition, a cell of of suffering. And I wonder what will hold you fast when that diagnosis of cancer arrives? Or to what person will you cling when you find out your child has a disability To what truth will you reach uh, when you hear that the mob is about ready to come for you? We're going to get to answer all of those questions uh, along the way in our text this morning as we come to what is the last time Paul preaches in this book of Acts. It's the last defense among many that he has made along the way in his missionary career. It's also the last time that we're going to get a, a sense into his spiritual autobiography as he makes his last stand there before Festus and Agrippa. And what I want you to see is Paul is very clear, and even the Roman rulers are very clear, uh, what lies at the very center, what lies at the essence of the conflict that the Jews have had with Paul, and the reason why Paul for so many years now has been in prison. If you glance down to verse 19 of chapter 25, what you'll see there is Festus tells this king named Agrippa. He says, simply, this is what the problem is that the Jews have with Paul. It's this conflict about a certain Jesus who was raised from the dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Now, if you skip over to chapter 26, verse 6 and 8, Paul basically says the same thing. He says, now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. That's the hope of the promise of resurrection. This is why he asked the question, notice verse 8 of chapter 26, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So our theme then this morning is Paul's last stand for the resurrection hope of Jesus Christ. All throughout this book, we've seen over and over, haven't we? That's the risen Lord Jesus who speaks to his church by his word through the work of his spirit. It's the risen Lord Jesus who saves sinners. And, and now, for one last time in this book, Paul's going to preach a gospel of a resurrection hope. So kids, if you have your Bible open in front of you, you'll notice, I trust, that chapter 25 and 26, what we're taking together this morning, has lots of verses in it. And what I want to do to try to keep it simple is that we're going to erase through rather quickly through chapter 25. There's just one point of application I want you to see in chapter 25 is it really is the context for Paul's last stand in chapter 26 because in chapter 25, you have a simple way of thinking about it. You have there is Paul before Festus, chapter 26, is Paul before Agrippa. In the first, it's Paul on trial for resurrection hope. And then we see him testifying to resurrection hope. So let's think about, first of all, Paul on trial for resurrection hope. So again, if you glance to the last verse of chapter 27, two years elapse. Paul is in this Roman prison in Caesarea. Felix was succeeded, the text says, by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And as the page turns now to chapter 25, what we find out is Festus is an energetic, uh, he's an eager ruler now there in Caesarea. Because it says from verse 1 of chapter 25 that three days after he began his charge, arriving in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. If you just glance through the next few verses, what you find out is is two years of, of seeing Paul, Knowing Paul is languishing in prison, it hasn't done anything to temper the hatred of the Jews towards Paul. They still want his head. And so they're pleading with Festus, Why don't you bring Paul up here? So he can stand trial on these accusations that we have lobbed at him for so many months and years by this point. And you'll see the text goes on to say, doesn't it, in verse 3, that uh, they're still wanting to ambush Paul along the way to assassinate him. Well, Ophestus says, well, why don't you come actually down to Caesarea and make formal charges there against Paul? And so, we're told in verse 6, after Festus stayed among them not more than eight or ten days. He went down to Caesarea, so something like maybe a week and a half later. The Jews show up in Caesarea, and notice their tune hasn't changed at all in the intervening time. Look at verse 7. Festus arrives. The Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Festus, again, he's, he's only a few weeks into his charge. It seems likely what Festus wants to do is, is curry favor, perhaps, with the leaders there in Jerusalem. Ensure that his early leadership has a good relationship with the Jewish religious leaders. So he says, Paul, why don't I send you? What do you think about going back, actually up, back up to Jerusalem to stand trial there for these charges that they've lobbied against you? And look at what Paul says in verse 10 and 11. He says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is anything to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And it's that appeal to Caesar that really bookends our two chapters, as we're going to see soon enough that it's the end of chapter 26. You see Festus and Agrippa wondering aloud, why did Paul appeal to Caesar? He's innocent of all these charges. He doesn't deserve death. Why is it? He could have been free. He could have been let loose, but he appealed to Caesar, which under Roman law means he must now get to Rome to make his case. Students, you might remember from a few weeks back, and certainly a few chapters back, in chapter 23, Paul's there in the Roman garrison, not far away from the temple in Jerusalem. He's undergoing much difficulty, much hardship. The Jews have tried to kill him. They've nearly beaten him to death a couple of times. And what we're told is that night, the Lord Jesus came, stood next to Paul, and do you remember what he said? He said, take courage. Now, why? Why, Paul, can you be courageous in the face of this opposition here in Jerusalem that makes it seem like you're never going to make it out alive. Well, he says, as you have, the Lord Jesus says, as you have testified to the truth about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify in Rome. But Paul knows what? He must get to Rome. Now, what I want you to see, perhaps the only thing that I want you to see from chapter 25 this morning, is what the Lord is doing in, in Paul's life. He's taking these sinful opponents, these trumped-up, ridiculous charges, this sham trial, these government powers that if you really read through the text, they just want to use Paul for their own purposes. And what is the Lord doing? But all throughout the background of all of these sinful actions and decisions of others, he's bringing his perfect purpose come to pass in Paul's life. That's why you should sit in here today if you're a child of God and take courage as well. Whatever it is that the Lord has specifically called you to, however it is that He is working in your life, you can be sure no matter the sin of your opponents, uh, no matter even the sin of government authorities, the Lord is going to. He assures you, doesn't He? He's going to use all of it to bring His purpose to pass. And as so often is the case, as you glance at verse 13... Uh, Paul has to wait longer. Uh, It just tells us some days have passed. Other translations would say many days passed. We don't know how many. But eventually, this man named King Agrippa. Think of him, children, as Festus's boss. He shows up there in Caesarea. If you just glance through the next few verses, uh, we find out that Festus is telling Agrippa, I've got this man. Saul, this Saul of Tarsus, this, this preacher of a resurrection hope that the Jews can't stand. They want his head on a platter, and he's appealed to Rome, and I'm going to send him to Rome, but I need to be able to write something in the letter that I send with him. So I need your help, Agrippa, and what I might be able to put into that letter that I would offer up to Rome. And it excites Agrippa's interest. Notice verse 22. He says to Festus, well, I would like to hear the man myself. And Festus says, tomorrow you will hear. Hear him. So this is Paul on trial for resurrection hope. Uh, you'll notice in verse 23 through 27, the very next day the trial is going to take place with great pomp and circumstance. And the original text would say something like, with great fantasy. That King Agrippa, his wife Bernice, Roman tribunes, and all the very important people in the city, they show up there at Festus's place of power in Caesarea. That they might hear from this mysterious man who has been imprisoned for so long, And you'll see even an important declaration of innocence. Look at verse 25. Festus says, I've found that he has done nothing deserving death. And as he himself has appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. So Paul is on trial, yet again, for resurrection hope in Jesus Christ. I want to fix your attention now on that second part of our passage, chapter 26, as we see Paul testifying to that same A resurrection hope. I think it's generally true that uh, preachers uh, tend to be discerning observers of other preachers, noticing things that perhaps other people wouldn't notice, appreciating things perhaps uh, other people wouldn't appreciate. There was an old preacher that was quite similar to this. His name was Giles Furman. And he was... Uh, taken in with the ministry of a man at the time who was uh, quite famous for his preaching prowess. His name was Thomas Hooker. And when Furman was preaching a sermon about Moses' courage before Pharaoh, he talked about the courage of this man named Thomas Hooker, saying he's got this awesome dread of the Lord's majesty such that he would put a king in his pocket, such as his fearlessness. I tell you that because it's nothing more than just a reflection of the Apostle Paul, because what he's going to do now in chapter 26, and I want you to see this by the end, uh, kids, it's as though spiritually speaking, he takes King Agrippa and puts him in his pocket, such as his boldness there. And of course, it was supposed to happen in this way. You might remember from Acts chapter 9 that the Lord, when he commissioned Paul, he said, you're going to go not only to Gentiles, not only to the children of Israel, you're going to preach to kings on your way to Rome. So here he is what? In Caesarea, preaching to a king. Therefore, Paul can stand there confident, can't he? This is exactly where I'm supposed to be. So you'll see, as Agrippa gives him permission to speak, Paul stretches out his hand. It's actually a sermon that very much follows ancient categories of rhetoric. And look at how he begins in verse 2 and 3. He says, I count myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg that you would listen to me patiently. And if you've been with us through any of our studies, through Paul's autobiographical uh, recounting of things in Acts, you know that he begins here in chapter 26 where he tends to begin. He speaks about his protege-like status among the Pharisee party in Judaism. This strict sect of those who were zealous for the law, that he was the best of the best in his generation. So zealous was he for the law, he'll go on to say in the next few verses, that he, he persecuted the way, he persecuted followers of Jesus Christ, content not merely to imprison them, content not merely to beat them, content also to cast his vote that they would be killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. But he knows it's not because of any of that that the Jews are upset at him. Again, notice, the crux of the issue, we can say theologically, for Paul and the Jews, is this matter of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Look again, verse 6, 7, and 8. He says, I now stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, That I am accused by Jews, O king, why is it thought incredible by any of you? That God raises the dead. I wonder if you're in here today and might might find the truth of life after death, resurrection hope, incredible, unbelievable. You might know that many religions in the world they believe in life after death. It's probably fair enough to say that many of them believe in in resurrection hope. But what makes Christianity utterly distinct, is we don't merely believe in life after death. We don't merely believe in resurrection hope. uh, We believe in in a resurrected king who brings resurrection hope. What is so offensive to the Jews is not only that Jesus Christ, he died, was buried, but that Paul and other apostles were proclaiming, he rose again. And this is a gospel that's supposed to go forth to the ends of the earth. And so it's for this resurrection hope that he's on trial. And you'll notice verse 12 through 23. That's really the bulk of what Paul's a sermon here is before he's interrupted by Festus in verse 24. And what's quite interesting actually about this main part of the text is not only, it gives us some new wrinkles on uh, the spiritual autobiography of Paul. But it, it's less interesting in Paul's conversion to Jesus Christ, as it is his commission from Jesus Christ, what the Lord was calling him to do. And what I want you to see are five simple summary words about this commission from Jesus Christ to make sure that we understand its importance. The first word is confrontation. Confrontation. Because uh, you might remember the story. It's on the road trip that changed the world. Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians and look at What happens after the bright light appears splitting the skies in verse 14 and 15? A voice was saying to me, Paul said, in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And it's always this way, isn't it? When the Lord Jesus means to call a person to himself, it always begins, doesn't it, with this word of, of confrontation, of the Savior addressing the sinner. Sinner, sinner, whatever the person's name is, why are you tarrying apart from me? Why are you continuing in your rebellion that will lead to eternal judgment? Why are you resisting? The Spirit's work in your life. And some of you might need that word of confrontation for the very first time today. Others of you might need that word of confrontation afresh for perhaps sin that's gone on too long unconfessed, hidden in secret in the sight of others, yet quite open and manifest before the Lord. And God draws near. In Jesus Christ, it always brings, doesn't it, this word of confrontation. But I want you to see, secondly, it's a word of identification. Because he tells Paul to get up, verse 16. Stand upon your feet, he says, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant, a witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you. I have this book at home that's this book from several years ago, I suppose. Maybe over a decade now. I can't really remember. It was a best-selling book for a period of time on the study of leadership. Study of leadership through the life of Abraham Lincoln, particularly his cabinet. It was a book that was titled, Team of, of Rivals. And what I want you to see is that what happens when the Lord Jesus converts sinners into saints, those who are rivals of God, according to this passage and no doubt so many others in the New Testament... Those rivals now become servants. What's the identity, he says, of Paul now? You persecutor of the church, you're my servant. You're my witness. That's why the church ought to be, shouldn't it, this team of servants. Students, he is the master and you are the servant. He is the shepherd. You are the sheep. In a world that strives for prominence and prestige as a leader, The Lord says, there's just one person in charge in this household. That's me. But I call you to be my servant, my witness. And I want you to see three important things about the gospel Paul was meant to preach. The first, continuing on with our summary words, is a word of revelation. You see verse 17 and 18. he says, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Why? Verse 18. To open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light. It's something that had been long been prophesied throughout so many of the Old Testament prophets that a time was coming when all the messianic realities would, would finally be revealed and, and light would now go out into uh, the darkness. And if you know the story of Acts well, it's actually why, in, in large measure, the Jews couldn't stand Paul so much. It's because he was sharing the light of the truth to people like Gentiles. But it's necessary, isn't it, for the very gospel to be light into darkness that goes forth to the ends of the earth. If you skip down to what Paul says in verse 23, he says the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I hope you're not like those Jewish leaders and persecutors of old that couldn't stand light going to people that you didn't want it to go to. Perhaps somewhat like Jonah. But I didn't want you to save the Ninevites. Why would the light go there? But the light's supposed to go everywhere. Because it's a gospel of revelation. It's also a gospel of liberation. Because he continues, doesn't he, in verse 18. Turn them from the power of Satan, Jesus says, to God. I wonder how much you thought this week about the forces of darkness that stand against God's people. Did Satan's opposition ever come across your mind this week? You know, Old baptismal vows when, when in churches in centuries past and even other traditions when candidates would come forward to be baptized upon their profession of faith, uh, they underscored the realities that, uh, of course, the, the great battle that belongs to our life in any age after uh, the work of Jesus Christ, it's not this battle against flesh and blood, but it's this battle uh, against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places, cosmic fa- uh, forces of power of, of the evil one. And so they would ask the person that came forward, To be baptized, the first vow usually would sound something like this. Do you renounce Satan and all the forces of darkness that stand against God? Uh, uh, Paul is sent, not only to reveal the truth, but to liberate souls that are captive to Satan. I trust you see even from these first few phrases of verse 18, what it means to be apart from Jesus Christ is to be utterly in the dark completely blind to saving grace, whether you realize it or not, you live in Satan's prison, chained to his evil ways, which leads to the final summary word I want you to see. It's not just a gospel of revelation and liberation. No doubt it's one of salvation. You see uh, the other purpose listed there in verse 18, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, By faith in me. Uh, Surely, those final benefits and blessings there in verse 18 uh, speak to the deepest longings of ordinary human hearts access to God through sin forgiven, assurance of God's place in heaven because of an inheritance shared with other saints who receives such benefits Paul makes it clear doesn't he verse 20 they belong to those that should repent and turn to God those that perform deeds in keeping with their repentance this is Paul's last stand for resurrection hope I sometimes wonder as much of my work kind of outside of the church involves Um, listening to lots of preaching, speaking to lots of preachers. If if far too many uh, preachers, and I speak only to our own tradition even today, uh, don't understand there is a profound difference between teaching and preaching. The New Testament does make that clear. And it reminds me of a friend of mine whose father for almost 60 years was a preacher and an evangelist. And he was one time asked to describe what's the difference between teaching and preaching. And he said, memorably, uh, preaching calls for a verdict. And what I mean by that, and what he meant by that, if I can advance his words a little bit, is that teaching will properly lead people to truth. So teaching leads to truth. But preaching always must plead with people from the truth. And it's exactly what Paul now does as Festus interrupts his sermon. You notice what happens in verse 24. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, and every preacher in the room, teacher in the room, can understand that distractions, interruptions come along the way, and sometimes a distraction or interruption can come along the way, the way they kind of uh, get you completely off your rhythm. But Paul is a a good preacher, no doubt, Uh, one of the best that's ever lived And he's not in any way rattled by this shout from Festus. Now what I want you to see as we come to the end of our passage and even the end of this sermon today, I want you to see something about the hearers and I want you to see something about the speakers. So students, pay attention first to the hearers to Paul's sermon. Two are primarily in Luke's mind as he records the account before us. Because first you have Festus. Who's an outsider to the faith, and he thinks this gospel of resurrection hope utterly foolish. Look what he says in verse 24 Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Students, in our time, we might say something more like, You're too smart for your own good, Paul. You should know better than this. This is not true. Who would ever believe this? well, you might be in here today thinking the exact same thing. Really? That's what Christians believe? Revelation, liberation, salvation, a risen, exalted Jesus Christ? Just nothing more than religious fantasy. But what's so striking about this passage is Festus's shout gets very little attention in Paul's mind. He's interested, most prominently, as the way Luke records this scenario, He's interested most in Agrippa, the insider who thinks it too fast to come to Jesus Christ. Because notice what we're told in verse 25 through 28. I'm not, mo- I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true, rational words. For the king knows about these things. And and kids, you can picture in that moment, he's addressing Festus wherever he would have been, perhaps on a platform-like place in the room. He's looking at Festus, and it's almost like he says, Festus, it's true, it's rational. But now he looks to Agrippa, and you see what he says. To him, I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul in short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And so, ever since the 17th century with the King James translation, Agrippa has gone down in church history as the almost Christian. The almost Christian. Because the text makes clear to us that, that Agrippa, he knows not just the Jewish customs, the Jewish Controversies. In Paul's mind, he not only knows the prophets, but he evidently believes in most of the prophets. And still he says, really? You think you would persuade me that quickly to become a Christian? I can't be bothered with a speedy response to Jesus Christ. And so if you glance down to verse 30 and 31, they aren't bothered at all, are they? Festus and Agrippa with a response to Jesus Christ. It's as though they depart from the room and they're speaking to each other in the hallway and saying, you know, Paul didn't do anything wrong. I mean, he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. They they immediately move away from the preaching that was pleading with them. Perhaps it's not terribly unlike what can happen in many a church today. You get up from a gospel preaching sermon. You get up from the Lord Jesus Christ announced in your presence and you turn around to a friend or family member, and say, what do you think is best for lunch today? It doesn't really suit the occasion, does it? But for people that have no interest in Jesus Christ, why think about him anymore? And I wonder if, if you might be like these hearers in any way. Pay attention to the hearers, because they've missed the resurrection hope. I want you to see finally, Pay attention to the speakers. The speakers. You see what's animating Paul there is a a desire that people would come to faith in, in Jesus Christ. Look up to verse 22. He says, to this day I've had help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying to both small and great. It's a wonderful universal approach. Man, woman, boy, girl, old, young. Wherever they are, however they've come, I speak to them. And what's the desire? Well, skip down to his simple answer to Agrippa's question, verse 29, whether short or long, King Agrippa, I would to God that not only you, but also who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. That's the heart of a a true Christian speaker, someone that shares the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm desperate for you to be like me, To know what I know, to to love what I love, to receive what I've received, and I will speak boldly, put kings in my pocket in order that they might listen. But I said, speakers, didn't I? Pay attention to the speakers. And you might rightly say, Jordan, there's really only one speaker there in Caesarea, and his name's Paul from Tarsus. And I would say, yeah, you're mostly true, you're mostly correct. But there is another speaker. Paul tells us there's another speaker when he writes to 2 Corinthians, or the letter to second, uh, the letter of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, he says, We apostles are ambassadors of reconciliation. He says, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. There was another speaker there that day. Not just Paul speaking, but a Savior speaking through him. Be reconciled to God. Someone speaking through even me now. Open your eyes. Know the freedom that I alone can provide. Know the forgiveness that I alone offer. Know the inheritance that I alone can give. It's not foolish to believe this. It's true and rational. It's not folly to come now. You're not promised another hour, let alone another year, let alone another decade. So would you come? Maybe you think it's folly. Maybe you think it's too costly, this obedience that Jesus Christ requires. Or would perhaps, unlike Festus and Agrippa, you might leave today and say, I look to him. This only Jesus Christ answers the dead problem of my sin and brings resurrection hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you do speak to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit. And do open our eyes and raise our gaze to your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might find the hope that is found in him. Our hearts might be made new. Our souls might be renewed as we come this day in faith through your Son in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Well, as we want the Lord